Hi everyone. In this episode of the podcast, we have with us uh, Eric Miller, who is uh, a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center, and um, he works very closely with the international private sector in uh, North America. Um, advising both governments as well as companies how to navigate these really interesting tricky turbulent times in trade Eric trade wars are on the those two words are uh, are on the on the news and in everyone's conversations and the tip of everyone's tongue these days emerging markets like sri lanka are um are beginning to 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 face the the strong headwinds uh, we haven't sri lanka at least hasn't been affected directly yet but trade wars don't hurt anyone uh, don't don't help anyone and eventually countries like ours are also going to um get get affected but i want to start with getting a sense from you where are these trade wars headed and what are you seeing from a north american perspective when you talk to government officials and companies well thanks so much for having me on to discuss this interesting topic so certainly um, uh, what's been dubbed the trade wars of course some uh, some look at them more as trade frictions uh, they are amplifying all of the time and so you are seeing a process of of shifting international trade processes in many regions of the world. But particularly, it's the nexus between the United States and China that has been very, very challenging. President Trump, when he was elected, set forth a process of trying to close the U.S. trade deficit with key markets. And so on his side, he has renegotiated the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement. They have just completed uh, a few days ago the renegotiation of the North American free trade agreement, which is now called uh, USMCA, which uh, many have said sounds frighteningly like YMCA, but you can make your own (laughs) judgment on that. Uh, And the key story, of course, is what's going on with the tariffs on China. There's now $250 billion in tariffs on China. Uh, there's another $267 billion coming down the pipe. And this means that within relatively short order, there could be tariffs on China basically to 100% of almost everything they sell to the United States. In addition, the Chinese, of course, have responded uh, to this. and. What all of this is leading to is a reassessment and a repositioning of where every country is in the international trading order, and they are looking at different strategies for how they go forward within this environment of heightened friction. Eric, for observers from relatively afar, um, it seems that there is no end in sight. And as you said, it, these the trade frictions or trade wars are only getting amplified and, and escalated. Are you pessimistic 
or optimistic. So pessimistic in the sense that yes, it is only going to amplify and it's going to, it we're in a downward spiral and there's there's no um, sign of the bottom of this. Or are you optimistic that this is a blip and this is really about renegotiating and uh, a little bit of posturing here and there and it's going to uh, re revert back to a new normal, but certainly not 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 spiraling completely out of control. Where where do you stand on that? Well, I, I agree very much with Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba's assessment, that this is going to be a 20-year process between the United States and China. They will fundamentally have to find ways to reconcile themselves uh, to each other. Uh, certainly, uh, different people have different views about who's right and who's wrong on this particular case. But fundamentally, the rise of China has been the great disruptor in the global economy. And whenever you have cases of a rising power within a status quo world, you have frictions that arise from that. You have seen, for example, even in the global apparel sector, which is something that is important here in Sri Lanka, uh, when the Uruguay round of the W of, that created the WTO uh, concluded, they countries had agreed to eliminate what was called the multi-fiber agreement, which governed uh, the trade of apparel with the United States. And everybody supported getting rid of the regime because they all thought they were going to get the biggest share. But today, 70% of all of the apparel in the world is made in China because nobody counted on the rise of China, which is really a unique and disruptive uh, country within the global international order. Now, certainly, President Trump's agenda goes beyond China. What you see is uh, a desire to remake the relationships with the European Union, with the Japanese. Uh, they've done that within North America and Korea. Fundamentally, you will see things happen on that, uh, on that front, as you have already in North America and with Korea. There is still the question of the use of the Section 232 tariffs, which uh, uh, is part of the U.S. trade law that says if there is, quote, a national security threat that the president may uh, impose uh, tariffs to deal with that. Uh, and certainly his uh, application of that in the case of steel and aluminum, uh, basically globally, and the threat to use it in uh, automotive, automobiles and parts will have significant impacts globally uh, if they are brought about. I mean, they already have been in steel and aluminum, but automobiles is, is really the massive one that would, would have an effect. So that will play itself out uh, in its own way. But really, the nexus of what people regard as the trade wars is really between the U.S. and China. So what does this mean? There's a certain decoupling of how the two countries are going forward and a very significant shift in supply chains. Uh, Eric, one of the things that we observe, at least or observed on the surface was that this is a U.S.-China friction, battle, war, whatever, however you want to term it. But what's interesting is, uh, at least in my assessment, you're seeing others like European Union and Japan and others using or almost subtly pleased that this issue has come about because they are now able to raise uh, some of the very concerns, maybe different to how the US and the US president has. But you know, it's not as if they're disagreeing entirely with the stance that the US has taken over China. And they do harbor some of the same 
views about uh, Chinese trade and um, policy practices. So it's interesting that the the U.S. has also want to renegotiate trade with these countries and has have imposed some tariffs uh, 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 tariffs on European Union etc but at the same time they're also seeming to be some allies some uh, they're also being allies because there was a uh, summit I think a few weeks ago where it was the US and uh, Japan and uh, some of the European Union countries to to talk about uh, to talk about this very issue um, so are, are they are they collaborators in this against uh, China or, or, or quote unquote containment of, of China? Or uh, I mean, it's a very interesting dynamic emerging, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the great um, one of the great paradoxes of the uh, of the Trump agenda is that Europe and Japan, are, in many quarters, are quietly happy, as you say, that the U.S. is. Uh, is pushing back very hard against China, which they themselves did not feel uh, empowered to do before. But at the same time, the president is asking things of them. So as you get through, now that the North America case is behind us, uh, the Korean case is behind us, and whatever comes of the bilateral talks with Japan and the European Union, what China really is concerned about is that you get uh, Japan, Europe, and North America allied against it because it needs markets abroad. It has not succeeded nearly as much as it would need to in developing its domestic consumption base to be able to sustain its level of manufacturing and thus employment. So it needs those markets abroad. And what terrifies them is that that market disappears. They're also very concerned about restraints on investment because uh, the Germans, for example, have been re-examining their policy about even smaller, say, 10% stakes in uh, that Chinese companies are taking in German companies because as a 10% owner, you can get access to details of intellectual property. And what happens to that intellectual property when uh, it is seen by Chinese firms uh, is a real question mark. And so there is a... a, a a happiness on the part of the Europeans, but a frustration that the president is also lashing out at them. But if this period of lashing out at traditional U.S. allies um, passes, and if the president and his team feel satisfied that they have effectively renegotiated their relations with Europe and with Japan, as they have with North America, you're going to see a very, very different ballgame. One of the things that has been important within the, uh, the new NAFTA context is uh, Article 3210, uh, which buried, is buried deep in there, which effectively prohibits uh, the, any country in North America from negotiating a bilateral free trade agreement with China. And so the world is splitting in some ways between the China bloc and the U.S.-European uh, bloc. And so... In, you could argue to, to not to be alarmist, but in some ways this feels like a nascent beginning of some sort of new Cold War. Mm -hmm. And of course, for a country like Sri Lanka, which is a uh, smaller open economy that seeks to have constructive relations with everybody, that means that your foreign policy complexity is about to grow. Mm -hmm. um, so, Eric, picking up on some of the comments you made, uh, particularly about uh, 
the rules um, and the level playing field around investment or intellectual property. Um, we were at the World Economic Forum uh, in event in Tianjin, where Premier Li Keqiang um, gave, delivered a keynote address, and he went out of his way to indicate that China is committed to creating a level playing field, removing some of the restrictions and um, and um, restrictive uh, pra- business practices placed on foreign entities and how how China is going to strengthen intellectual property and so on. From what your interactions with North American leaders in government and in business, are they buying this change? Are they seeing that there is a genuine, com- genuine commitment from China to to correct its ways on this, um, uh, and and particularly around the technology, uh, technology and intellectual property piece, uh, for the most part, no. The problem that you have is that um, China has had a policy of forced technology transfer, uh, and even uh, the use of less the, than savory means of acquiring intellectual property. A challenge that they have, which makes their their new assertions uh, difficult to find credible, is made in China 2025. They have laid out their strategy for becoming the dominant player in 10 industries around the world, becoming the dominant technology player, and what many people, including the European Union Chamber of Commerce in Beijing, have said is this is the recipe to push foreign companies out of China. And so a key part, if you go back even to read uh, people like Sun Tzu, the great Chinese strategist, a key part of Chinese negotiating strategy is when challenged, uh, you can first lash out and push back angrily. And then the next step is to offer concessions, which may look on the surface to be something that is significant. But if you read into it significantly, is not really something that moves the yardsticks. And so you saw, for example, when they were receiving pressure from the U.S. in the beginning, they said, well, we will cut our auto tariff by 40 percent. Well, their auto tariff was 25 percent, and they went to 15 percent, which sounds like a lot. But when you consider the profit margins on vehicles, where if you're talking about a typical mid-sized sedan vehicle, you can make, if you're an auto company, anywhere between... Eight hundred to seventeen to seventeen hundred dollars, or even up to two thousand dollars. You're not going to make money selling those from North America into China, when China still has that fifteen percent duty. So it effectively makes it meaningless. And so, the Chinese have a challenge of policy credibility that nobody, nobody has yet seen a reason to take them seriously in terms of their commitment to change and their commitment to um, offer that level playing field. And so in the meantime, those who are heavily invested in China are, of course, inclined to believe that the Chinese are changing. But to those who are looking at where they're going to put their next investment, China is not going to be that preferred location. And what you see when I'm in Southeast Asia frequently is a a large outflow of global manufacturers from China to countries like Vietnam. And so I think we're in this for the long haul. But the important thing for your listeners to take away is that when change comes, there's opportunity. 
When you are looking at a major shift of supply chains potentially out of China, that's got to go somewhere. And so the question is, where is it going to go? I know in apparel, many people are looking at India. I know in, uh, in, in other industries, they're looking at Southeast Asia. So part of the question is, what is the strategy in Sri Lanka to help to attract that investment here? And certainly, the strategy to build the world-class logistics center here to service all of that as it goes to European, U.S., and other markets. And so to me, uh, you know, there's an old saying that, uh, that uh, the mice get trampled when the elephants fight. But if you're a fast mouse that is particularly agile at avoiding the steps of the elephants, there's a great opportunity for you to do a lot of good things here. So uh, from a Sri Lankan-specific perspective, trade wars actually may be an opportunity rather than entirely a threat. Thanks, Eric. Optimistic uh, note, but certainly a call to action uh, around how Sri Lanka can latch on to, to this in, in the midst of the, the firefight. How do we remain not just unscathed, but also to thrive? So thank you very much once again for, for joining us. You're very welcome. Eric, to close uh, where we started off around trade wars and trade frictions, some of these the, the retaliatory measures by China are hurting the people and companies in North America, right? Uh, in in uh, particularly in the the heartland, which you know, in, in many ways uh, has been President Trump's base, in right. particularly in the soybean um, areas, agriculture and so on, and I'm sure soon in other industries. How do you think this is going to pan out in terms of what companies, some of these companies who are very closely, they have very tight uh, supply chains, uh, it's, it's not it's spread around the world. They rely on China as one location for production. So they surely wouldn't want a trade war. Plus, you have these uh, communities, particularly agricultural communities, that are hurting as a result of, of uh, the consequences of the trade wars. So l- looking at it from those constituents, global companies involved in global production networks, and communities engaged in agriculture who are likely to get hit by retaliatory measures, um, surely there's going to be some pressure on the polit- political class uh, uh, around how this trade war is, should be managed, right? Yeah. So certainly if you're a soybean farmer in um, Kansas, you are worried about what's happening because China buys a significant amount of soybeans from the United States. If you are uh, an importer of inputs from China for assembly of more sophisticated products, you're very worried. And, of course, there is pressure that is manifested. But one of the least told stories of the Trump administration is how little the generalized pressure of the U.S. business community is, is shaping policy. The White House, in many respects is not swayed as past administrations have been by large global pressure. You saw dozens of companies turn up at the hearings about whether this $200 billion in tariffs should be imposed, and almost nobody got up and said that they should be. But at the end of the day, it was. And so the president has a very 
clear mind about what he wants to do on these issues, and he is not easily swayed by arguments related to supply chains. So what that means is fundamentally you're going to see a painful resetting of global supply chains. It means prices will go up. It means that uh, that uh, friction will grow. But fundamentally, uh, they are not looking at a situation where they are going to yield on traditional means. And so given the determination of the, uh, of the Trump White House and frankly most members of Congress who are now liberated to express their long-held anxieties about China. I don't see this changing anytime soon. So there is no countervailing force that will do this. And the surest sign was that uh, traditional members of China's advocacy uh, constituencies in the United States, such as some of the large financiers on Wall Street, well, they actually held a meeting with some of their friends in Beijing recently which essentially turned into a session of lament about why no one was listening to them.